When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Julian Bajini to discuss the themes of his new book, The Godless Gospel, Was Jesus a Great Moral Teacher? And in this conversation, he spoke to Mark Mardell about how from mainstream politics to sexual morality, whether Jesus was actually a more radical figure than popular culture often depicts. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Julian's book in the episode description. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partners at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Mark Mardell. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Julian Bagini, writer and philosopher, author of How the World Thinks and A Short History of Truth, among many, many other books. And the latest is The Godless Gospel, Was Jesus a Great Moral Teacher? Welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. It's a fascinating and provocative read. Why did you want to write it? Well, it's partly born of a kind of exasperation, to be honest. I mean, there were lots of factors behind it, but people repeatedly say, as though it were just self-evidently true, that Jesus was a great moral teacher, even if they don't believe he was a son of God. And, you know, even people like Richard Dawkins are on the record as as saying this. And it just struck me that people should really take those things more seriously. And I suppose one sort of recurring theme, I've been an atheist for quite a long time, but I've always taken religion very seriously and the rejection of religion very seriously. So I, I don't like any kind of flippant, easy kind of solution to a big problem. Now, Jesus is a looming figure in in Western civilization, in fact, all over the world. If we no longer believe he's the son of God, as most of us don't, 
and we want to think he was a great moral teacher, we, I think we owe it to ourselves to, to take that seriously and to really have a look at what he said and think, if you do strip away the divinity, are you really left with anything worth holding on to? Or have you just got a few platitudes, nice words such as love thy neighbour and do as thou would be done by, which are not unique, are not special and wouldn't make Jesus stand out? And the godless gospel isn't just the title, it is an actual thing. The second half of the book, you've taken out the religious elements and done a compound gospel. Yes, that's something that other people in the past have, have done similar versions of. Jefferson did it and Tolstoy did it. Although I think neither of them did it quite so thoroughly, if you like. They kept in certain things such as healings, which I, I didn't do. So the idea was this, that I, I want to make it clear, I'm not trying to get at the original historical Jesus. I mean, I just don't think we know who that figure was, and most scholars would agree. It's If we're talking about Jesus as a useful moral teacher, it's like thinking of Socrates as a great moral teacher. The only version of that person we've got is the one that came down in the Gospels, essentially. And if you don't believe in the miraculous bits, then what happens if you just strip them all away? So it's like a, yeah, it's going through with a, a red pen, uh, the digital equivalent thereof, and taking out anything that talks about his divinity, any miracles, any supernatural occurrences, any prophecies, and see what's left. And I do think that's really interesting. I mean, <laughs> one of the great things about this book is I can say with all honesty is that if the reader is not remotely interested in what I have to say, it's quite something to actually go through the Gospels and see what is left if you take out all the supernatural elements. It's clearly a thought experiment in the sense that God, the man's relationship to God, is central to the Gospels and the miracles and so on are central. Yeah, I think that's right. I think by the time you, whatever the original Jesus said, <laughs> by the time you got to the Gospels, very clearly the authors of those Gospels believed that Jesus did have a divine status, that he did perform miracles and so forth. So absolutely, it's a thought experiment. Um, it, 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 it's, 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 again, just seeing... But the point is this, so many people do think that there is stuff worth saving from Jesus' teachings, even though they don't believe all those miracles, that it seems worth conducting that thought experiment to see if it's true. Uh, it struck me, reading the first part of the Godless Gospel, until you get to the Sermon on the Mounts, it keeps on saying what an amazing preacher he was and how people were angry about it and what an amazing preacher he was and how people were angry about it, but you don't actually get what he said. And, uh, there's there's loads later on. but uh... Yeah, that, that's true, isn't it? That's true. He's, he's very divisive from the beginning. I think that's one of the really interesting things about Jesus is that we like to think of him today, I think, as a bringer of peace. And in some ways that's true. But he he's shown consistently from the very beginning to the very end to be extremely divisive. And I think that often says a lot about people as much as it does about Jesus. The ordinary person in the Gospels is portrayed as, as rather fickle. You know, one minute they're praising him and saying how wonderful he is. The next minute they're trying to chase him off a cliff, you know, quite literally. Um, and so I think, you know, it takes rather a dim view of human nature in a way, I think. I wanted to look at some of the arguments which struck me as really not part of the normal common picture of Jesus. But before that, I suppose there's an overarching idea that you've brought out, a rejection of the world and its rewards. Yeah, I think that's true. Again, I mean, the, the thing is, it, when we have, we have certain preconceptions about you know, what the teachings of Jesus are, and I was really trying to just have a look you know, empirically at what, the core, what, what are the things he keeps going back to again and again. And I think it's, it's really clear that there's this disinterest in, in worldly success, even worldly flourishing. I mean, and that, I think that's partly why 
you know, these sayings such as blessed are the poor and blessed are, are the weak. It's not that there is a certain promise that things might be better in the future that sometimes comes out. But if you look at the overall message, I think the idea seems to be that in a way we're better off when we are not overburdened by worldly concerns, worldly power and worldly goods. If we want to do the serious work of becoming the best people we can be, it really doesn't help to have the things of the world. So we cast them off. So that's why it's actually, in a sense, good to be poor in certain ways. And I think that's just such a central message. I think it's very hard to disagree with it. Jesus wasn't as puritanical as some. So compared to John the Baptist, for example, he is prepared. Yeah, if, if he's a guest of somebody and they offer him wine, he'll he'll drink it. Even the woman who comes with ointment wants to anoint his feet with rich stuff. So he does. He's not sort of prissy like that. He won't reject things if they come his way. But he doesn't seek them out for himself, and he doesn't encourage other people to seek them out either. But it's so it's seeing wealth, worldly goods, as a burden on your spiritual development or on your development. I suppose we shouldn't say spiritual in... Well, we, we could use spiritual in that loose sense. No, I think that's true. Now, it, it, it's worth saying that, again, this has resonances with other philosophies and philosophers of the Greco-Roman world at the time. I mean, people often make the connection between Jesus' teachings and that of the Stoics. And I think there is a kind of similarity there, and that's why it still makes some kind of sense even if you're not religious. So it's not about spiritual development to get to an afterlife, to achieve some kind of reward. It's it's a seriously saying the best way to live here and now is with making your own, as it were, goodness the most important thing, to become the, the best person you can be in that moral sense. And in that way, all material wealth, all these other things, even things like family, actually, are distractions from that. So, so it does it does make a kind of sense in a secular world? Even though I think, you know, personally, <laughs> I'm not totally sold on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the, no, no, nobody. Sorry, let me just start that again. It's very difficult to be sold on that message, and you you make a point of as many people have in the past saying the church and Christians don't seem that sold on that message. No, I think that, I think that's right. I mean, for for me, even in theory, I think it's going too far. I think rather like the Stoics, um, the idea that we achieve some liberation from the world by detaching ourselves from family goods, etc. I think that's too high a price to pay. I I, I go for the view ultimately that life is ultimately sort of somewhat tragic, it is bittersweet, and that in order to have the fulfilments of things like love and relationships and the enjoyments that fleshy life has to give, that brings a certain sadness with it because nothing lasts, everything is temporary. I think that's part of the deal. And I think Jesus belongs to that whole family of thinkers who try to say, I don't like that deal, Um, I want to sort of break it. And a way to break it is to detach ourselves from the world. And I think it is too strong a message for most people. I reject it philosophically. What I find interesting is that most Christians haven't rejected it philosophically or theologically. It's just that in practice, they can't seem to do it. It's too hard. It's too hard. And in a way, that's fair. I mean, you know, Jesus says, be the perfect, at the same time saying that nobody is perfect, not even himself. So I think that it's kind of consistent to hold as an ideal something you can never achieve, but you're constantly striving towards. 
And that, if, if people think that sounds strange, I would suggest just think about, particularly these days, sports people, sportsmen and women. They're, if interviews them, they constantly talk about how they're striving for a perfection that they can never fully achieve. But it's that striving for perfection which enables them to achieve their best. And really, the message here is, if that's a valuable thing to do when it comes to pursuing your sporting excellence or your artistic excellence or your excellence as a broadcaster, uh, Mark, you know, then why isn't that also important to do for pursuing our excellence in the moral sense? Doesn't it risk, and I suppose that's true in all the other fields, the constant threat of failure, that you're always failing, you know you're going to fail, you know you're not going to be your best. Yeah, I think that's true. And this is why, I mean, I, I spoke to many Christian theologians and, and and philosophers for the book and I think that's one of the reasons why for believers the secular version of the gospel message uh, doesn't work because with the religious version you have the divine so as it were take you that extra mile you can't do it by yourself you cannot fully succeed but by God's grace as it were um, you can get there in the end, as it were. Without God's grace, we are left constantly falling short in, in an imperfect world, never being good enough. I think, again, I don't think that's a huge problem <laughs> in the sense that if you take it in the wrong way, it could lead to things like self-loathing, uh, self-hatred, which would be wrong. But if one just accepts that we are imperfect, fallen creatures trying to do our best, if one takes that message and adds to it a kind of compassion, then I think that's good. I, th- I think it's good that people don't get complacent about their goodness and are constantly aware that they're, they're not good enough. Because we we tend to do the wrong things precisely in those moments when we actually think yeah i'm 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 not bad after all and and you constantly use the word striving for the good you just mentioned doing the wrong thing what does jesus say the good is and what is what are the wrong things yeah i mean that's interesting you know i think that all moral systems or all moral beliefs have at their heart either explicitly or implicitly some kind of conception of the, you know, the summum bonum, as they say in Latin, if you want to make it sound serious, you know, the, the, the ultimate good, the highest good. And, and what is that for, for, for Jesus? Uh, some people would say it's love, actually. Um, love in that sense of agape, I think, is the, uh, the, the Old Testament word. And it's really that kind of, it's not a kind of like sentimental love or romantic love. It's not even, even a feeling. It's just that doing good kindness, you know, loving kind, perhaps similar to the loving kindness you get in Buddhism. It's the word that gets translated sometimes as charity, isn't it? Which is weak. But is that yeah, right? I think so. I think perhaps the word charity, though, has perhaps become associated too much with other things. But it's a kind of a benevolence to all things. I'm not sure about that. I, I, I think that perhaps... The ultimate, the, the 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 good it seems to be aiming towards, is a kind of you know an inner transformation where you yourself become as good as you can be, the the best version of yourself that you can be. That involves uh, detachment from from what it concerns. It does involve compassion and love for others, but that's kind of seems to be what what it's what it's aiming for, which is interesting because it's, it's a in a way that's a very kind of solipsistic goal i mean clearly if everyone were like this we would have a good society so you might think the objective is a good society but 
you know, when, when Jesus talks about the, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it's an interesting, I mean, theologians argue about this as well, that the term used is not generally seen to be referring to a place. It's like the rule, the rule of the good, the rule of God. Uh, so it's kind of living under the rule of the, the eternal, as it were, living under the, the way of, 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 of eternal goodness. But ultimately, the focus is so much on you doing the best that you can, which is why, for example, you know, you don't judge others. That's one thing you don't do. And secondly, it's also why there's so little interest in, in political change. Right. So the ultimate good does seem to be the transformation of the self. You can only you can only that's, that's the only thing you have control over, ultimately, isn't it? Hopefully other people will do the same by being a model, by being an example. Others might follow a good society might follow. But it really does seem to be the transformation of the self, which is at the heart of it. And that's one of the things that really struck me that I hadn't thought of before. It's focused on the individual. It's almost it's not an individualistic creed, but it is focused on what you can do for yourself about yourself. No, absolutely. And I think this is interesting too, because, sorry, I must say that the word interesting is the most overused word. I put it in virtually every sentence, unfortunately. But this is really interesting. And a lot of people have made the connection between Christianity and its role in the development of Western civilization and the kind of individualism that we see in modern times. They draw a direct line, in effect, between Jesus, who, who really transformed the relationship between God and the world. So in the Jewish tradition, it was a relationship between, between God and his people. It was more of a collective relationship. Now, I know Judaism is, like all things, it has varieties in it, so one can overgeneralize, but that, that seems to be the overall picture. In Christianity, it became a relationship between God and the individual. And, and through that line, this seems to be the roots of what has developed into the conception of individual rights, individual autonomy in the Enlightenment. And today... Perhaps the kind of individualism we see in consumerism, which is, of course, what Jesus would have abhorred. But maybe there is that direct line there. And also the rejection of, well, you mentioned the political realm. And you, many ages get the Jesus they deserve, or at least they want. And you, Jesus the political revolutionary was something we've seen and still see people talking about. But you think he wasn't a political animal? I, I don't. And I think it's very hard to see that he was. And I think you're right. We want, we want a certain kind of Jesus. <laughs> I, he, he repeatedly says it very, very clearly. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. He, 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 he was criticised and people, followers of him, got disillusioned because he wouldn't lead them to revolutionary change. And he said, you have to render unto Caesar, etc., etc. So time and again, he, he, he explicitly shows no interest in bringing about political change because the focus is on the self now today of course a lot of people who are christian have rather commendably a great interest in the welfare of the poorest and the weakest they want a fairer world christians have been some of the most involved people in campaigning for a fairer world and the eradication of poverty and you have to give modern christians that credit for that but in order to sort of like connect that with Jesus's teaching, I think you have to go through a few steps, let's put it that way, which is fine. I mean, in a way, I would suggest that the best way to use any thinker is not to try and have absolute fidelity to what they said, but to take the best of what they said and to adapt it as times go, go forward. But I think you do have to adapt Jesus to get to that position. No, but it is, to use that word again, interesting that 
that is what you take from them, what he wanted to say, that being good to widows and orphans, for instance, isn't about creating a better society, but it's about creating a better self the way you behave. Yeah, that's, that, yeah I think that's right. I mean, it is interesting, again, that time and time again, when he talks about giving away wealth and so forth, the benefit is primarily seen to accrue to the person who gives away the wealth. There's a, quite a nice uh, parable, actually, of a feast, a wedding feast, in which a rich person invites people and no one turns up and people reject it. And he commands his people to go and round up people to come, basically, and whether they like it or not. And uh, one of them one of them is actually then punished for wearing the wrong clothes, which seems a little bit... A little bit unfair but the, the benefit seems He's to be bound hand and foot and cast into the darkness <laughs> your memory is yeah yeah exactly your, your memory is even better than mine but yes I mean it, it does this does seem to be the point I mean so the point about the rich man giving away his wealth because the, the point is, is if you think about it if wealth is something that we should get rid of it's not really doing any favours <laughs> to the people who get it. It's making them wealthier, which which could be a problem. So the, the main benefit is is getting rid of it yourself. So, and I th- but I think that's such a countercultural message for us today. You know that we, we we most of us today think the point about wealth distribution is to level up, right? Whereas actually for Jesus, it does seem the point is to is to level down. Really, you know, it would be better to have a world without rich people. Whereas most of us today think it'd be better if everyone could enjoy what the rich enjoyed. What do you think then his vision of society, if he had a vision of society, if he thought about that, was? Because in in a fairly narrow sense that, yes, he was saying to people who follow them, follow him, give away everything you've got, follow me, abandon everything. Was he saying everybody should do that? Do you think everybody in the world? Or was it just those who were part of his cult, if you well, like? In, in, implicitly, it would seem everyone. I mean, he, 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 he says time and again that the message is hard, and so he never expected everyone to do it. So in a way, if everybody did <laughs> manage to do what he asked them to do, he would be more surprised than anybody else. So I think because it was something which was always presented as too hard for most people... In a sense, you didn't even have to think about what would happen if everyone did follow it. But I guess, you know, if you extrapolate from it, imagine what would a world like that be? I mean, I have to say, I think it would be a fairly joyless place, actually. I think the world-renouncing aspect of it, this is what I don't like, it would be a world without joy, but it would be a world in which people, there was there would be no competition, there wouldn't be any striving, people would be at peace with themselves. It would be a very peaceful and harmonious world. I just think perhaps rather a flat and dull one. <laughs> and you actually use the word bleak at one stage. Well, it's it's bleak in some ways. I think some of the bleakness is because, you know, without... So, so this gospel ends with a death and a burial. There's no resurrection. And I think that this this is true. I think that the a secular, a wholly secular worldview always has a certain bleakness. Now, I'm I'm a... I'd call myself a humanist, atheist humanist, and I, I utterly reject the idea that life can't have meaning, purpose, and joy without God. It can, but I think sometimes humanists don't do themselves are not being completely honest when they try and overplay that and say, "Oh, well, you know, it's fine. It's everything's great. Everything's fine. You know, 
um, we're the happy, smiley, clappy brigade. I think that there is a certain bleakness in the world where, you know, everything is destined to die. Not just everything is, is destined to die. If everything were destined to come to an end after a period of flourishing and success, maybe we could live with that. But a world without God is a world in which some lives are basically impossible and difficult from beginning to end and there's no ultimate redemption and that has to be bleak and i i i defy any atheist not to to accept that i think it's what an honest humanism requires and you rather generously quote c.s lewis against your idea of the godless gospel saying it's patronizing nonsense to that jesus was uh, to say this jesus was either a fool a demon or the lord and god and I suppose he's he's sort of backing up what you've just said, that it's bleak without God. Yeah, well, I think the, the Lewis quote is often trotted out, particularly by sort of Christian evangelists, as to say, you have no choice. You know, you've got to take one of these things. You don't, you, you don't have, it's true, you, you don't have a choice if you think that Jesus was as portrayed in the Gospels. But of course, I don't see why anybody who didn't have a remarkable faith would think that even most Christians who are thoughtful and study the gospel acknowledge the fact that you get a different character in each of the gospels. The gospels were written many years after Jesus's death. And it's still astonishing how many times you meet a Christian who claims they were written by eyewitnesses as though this, this is, this is simply not true. And almost all serious biblical scholars um, accept that this, this isn't true. So if if you were to believe, against all the evidence, I think, that the Gospels accurately portrayed what Jesus said, then that's true. You'd have to say the guy was a nutter or he was what he said. He was the son of God. But I'm not really interested in that question in the sense that I've no idea whether this is accurate portrayal of, of Jesus or not. OK, we do have a choice to take this character and I, I think we should treat him as a kind of a character based on a true story, maybe, but, you know, very, very loosely, and ask ourselves, you know, is it possible that, that this, this person could have been talking sense without believing he was a son of God? And even with, even in the Gospels, if you take away the miracles and the resurrection, a lot of Jesus' words about himself are, are somewhat cryptic. It's not entirely clear what he means by saying he's... He says he's a son of man a lot of the time, rather than the son of God anyway. What does it even mean to, to be the son of God, you know, I think we, we've come to assume that means he has a unique relationship to 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 the Godhead. And But I think in, in the earlier Christianity, there's quite a lot of evidence that yeah, all, all, all this sort of fanciful theology came rather later. And that earlier on, it, it, it's more than possible he saw himself as divinely inspired, for sure. He saw himself as the son of God from that way. But he didn't see himself especially in any other way. And you also make that point about kingdom of heaven, that it's not necessarily... I mean, I've always thought of it as meaning the afterlife, but you say it doesn't necessarily mean that. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. So the, the word is the basilica. The basilica is the word which is often translated as kingdom. And I think a lot of scholars say it's better translated as something like the, the reign, the reign of heaven and the, and the reign of God. And, and that's so that's not necessarily an afterlife. And again, if you look at unless you assume the kingdom of heaven means an afterlife, and it's very diff, it's very difficult to read the Gospels fresh. We, we come to them with our assumptions. But if you actually read the context in which those phrases occur, I don't think it's ever explicit that it refers to an afterlife. And if you think about it in terms of a reign of God, God's reign, it makes a lot of sense. 
And, and you can also compare that perhaps to the Confucian idea. In Confucian thought, they talk about the way of heaven. Now, in Confucian thought, it's very, very clear that there's, there's no idea of, an, of a heaven you go to in afterlife. The way of heaven is really what we might call today the natural order of things, yeah, where n- nature has a certain divine status. So you can, you, I think you can understand the kingdom of heaven in a similar way to the Confucius's way of heaven. It's, it's, it's the, the way in which we should live, the most natural inspired order. It's like the rule of law. It's the rule of, the, of justice or the rule of... Goodness. Indeed, yeah. And um, one, uh, you mentioned Jesus being rather cryptic about what he thinks about himself, but also one of the things that struck me was parables. I've always thought of them, and most people I think do, as simple stories for simple folk with agriculture metaphors in there, lots of sheep and tares and uh, goats. But actually they are riddles, you say, and when you think about it, because so many parables, you think, what does that really mean? But you yes. think that's intentional? Well, it, it seems to be. Again, there's one passage which is very explicit about this, where the, his, his disciples ask him why he, he talks in, in parables, why he teaches in parables. And he, he says, effectively, it's because, you know, not everyone can understand these things. So I, I say, I, I'll tell you, between you and me, what these things mean, <laughs> to make their meaning clear. But, you know, they, they are, seem to be designed to be cryptic. Now, again, I think that makes perfect sense. In 20th century, 21st century moral philosophy, and in in most things, we think the purpose of of explaining anything is to be clear and explicit, state your premises, state your arguments, define your terms. We have a sort of rather, you know, logical, matter-of-fact way of approaching things. But again, in lots of traditions, historically, and still in other parts of the world today, the main point about moral teaching isn't to, as it were, teach you true things which you can repeat back and pass a test with. It's to, to build your moral character. So it's a practical instruction. And with practical instruction, it's very important that the, the, the disciple, as it were, or the apprentice, has to sort of learn the skills for themselves. So really, it's very appropriate that if you're trying to teach people about how to live that you don't just say, do this, do that, that you actually give them things to think about. So it's a puzzle which, working out the puzzle, is part of the solution. Yeah, it's working out the puzzle, and it it shows you've got it because you can work it out for yourself. And because I mentioned Confucius recently, he's on my mind again, and Confucius says, again, something rather striking, where he says, if I teach my student, as it were, one corner of the square and they can't see the other three for themselves, then they're not ready to learn the lesson. Okay, so it's a, it's a nice little metaphor. The idea is that, you know, it's only when you can complete the picture for yourself that you've really understood it. If you need your teacher to spell out every single element, you're not yet sufficiently advanced. In the same way for the parables, you know, you've got to draw out the moral of the story for yourself. If you can't do that, you haven't got it. If you have, well, you're beginning to get there. And I suppose there's, you can see parallels as well with the Zen, uh, what's the word, koan, is koan, it? Koan, yeah. One, one hand clapping, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> You've got to think about it. Yeah, I mean, the Zen koans, I think they're, they're, they've got a slightly different purpose in the sense that one of the purposes of those koans is to try to get you to see the limitations of, of, of language and logical thought. So it's trying to kind of remind you that words can be traps. Right, that's interesting. And another, another yet another interesting thing... Um, yeah, he doesn't like rules, though, does he? This part of working it out for yourself is that rules and regulations and the law 
and not something he adheres to that much or is that bothered about or is that right no i think i think that's right and again he's in a he's in a long tradition so uh, both aristotle aristotle virtue ethics is is the name given to his kind of system again a lot of similarities with confucius and the idea in virtue ethics is that you know rules and principles are all very well but the problem with rules is this that if you're kind of a good person you don't need rules to follow Okay, so if you're a good person, the reason you don't murder your neighbour is not because there's a rule saying do not murder your neighbour, it's that you're a good person. Murdering neighbours is not what you do. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're a bad person, rules don't stop you. So if you're a bad person, the fact that you know you're not supposed to murder, well, murder might be strong, you're not supposed to pilfer your neighbour's deliveries when they're left on the doorstep when they're out, then knowing that the rule isn't you shouldn't do that isn't, isn't going to stop you either. So actually, as a matter of fact, rules, if you think about it, are, are fairly useless. In a way, what rules really are, are, are generalisations. They're kind of like things that tell us what are generally true or false. But, sorry, things that are generally good or bad. But what makes a person good or bad is really about their own character. And so Jesus, in this kind of way of thinking, was very much against people who ended up mistaking laws and rules with what their true purpose was. So the purpose of rules and laws is never to follow them for their own sake. It's that they're pointers to things that are important and pointers to things that are valuable. So, for example, working on the Sabbath was something that he got into trouble for a few times. A couple of times, he or his apostles did things, very little things, on the Sabbath. And the law said you're not supposed to work. And, you know, his point really was this. The the point about not working on the Sabbath was to point us to the importance of rest and making a day special. It wasn't that there should be some absolute prohibition. And what he tended to find was that when when rules themselves become too important, then what happens is people fail to notice what the rules are really for, so they take their eye off the ball. And also it just empowers a whole class of like clerics and and lawyers. The term lawyer turns up in the Bible a lot, but it really means a kind of a a theological legal scholar, not a solicitor in our our current sense. It leads to these sort of authorities and and people to, to, to basically wield their power over other people. And I think, again, that, that, that really does ring true, doesn't it, I think? That, you know, we, we, no one likes a job's worth and no one likes someone who, who simply insists on following the rules even when it's completely insane. And yet, this is, despite man is not made for the Sabbath, time and time again you get in Christian culture people who insist on a dull, boring Sunday and what you can and can't do on a Sunday. They don't, they don't seem to... Well, yes, I mean, I think I mean, one of the sort of depressing things is that so many of the things that Jesus sort of warned against, the, the Christian church, and the Christian church is very diverse, of course, but huge strands of the Christian church have simply ended up repeating the same mistakes. He was very, very clearly against clerical authority and hierarchy, and most Christian denominations have that in spades. He was against the idea of, of rules becoming too strict, and yet again, people have been murdered and tortured and killed for for... for daring to say something which was considered heretical. I mean, it's so obvious reading the Gospels that uh, Jesus was against that kind of stuff. It seems rather incredible that the church went in those directions. I mean, the woman... Where where would he have been on sexual morality? Because often when you talk about Christian morality, it means sex in one form or another. Yes, again, interesting for the upteenth time. Because 
he, I don't think he's, he really wouldn't please anyone on this score. I mean, some people would like to think that Jesus talked about love and showing and therefore had no interest at all in these matters. But he is very explicit. Adultery is a sin. Adultery is wrong. And, and not only that, but even having the thought, even having the thought is you've already done wrong. So he's actually very, very strict on adultery. But having said that, he says very little about um, sexual morality. He says nothing at all about homosexuality whatsoever. So you really can't extrapolate anything about that. But the key thing is, he, he certainly doesn't seem to think it's as important as, because a lot of Christians have come to see it as. I mean, first of all, because he said he doesn't talk a lot about it. But the one time when an adulterer is brought before him, and remember, he has explicitly said adultery is wrong, and they want to stone her. He, he, he turns, he, you know, he says to them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. So he's, he, and, and they, they, of course, walk away because no one can claim to be without sin. Now, he, he does say to the woman, he, very interesting exchange. He says, who has condemned you? And she says, nobody, which is interesting again, because he, she has been condemned in the sense that people wanted to stone her, but she hasn't actually been formally charged or whatever. And he says, neither do I condemn thee go away and sin no more so clearly he thinks she sinned but he refuses to condemn her and this goes this whole thread of not judging other people and there's an interesting very visual filmic almost moment at the beginning of that which i'd forgotten until i read it in the book that he sort of when they first ask him he sort of goes mm-hmm, and writes in the sand with his finger and doesn't answer i mean it's it sort of captures something of a real character there, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. He he just sort of scribbles in the sand, sort of draws in the sand. He he's often quite silent, actually. He doesn't he doesn't sort of a rush to speak, which is interesting in itself. So yeah, I think the whole sexual morality thing is, 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 is there's really nothing there, and even the stuff about adultery. That the main problem with adultery again, you do have to be sensitive to the time he was in, and the thing the thing is. If someone, the welfare, particularly women and children, depended upon a stable family structure, right? And so it would be disastrous. Adultery could be disastrous. It was totally to be rejected. But that's only if you're in that situation in the first place. Um, he, he says again on other occasions, he's very clear that it's better not to get married at all. People often say, well, Paul said that, but Jesus didn't. In fact, you know, if you look, I've got it in there. Jesus pretty much does say the same thing as Paul, that to, 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 to become a, a, a eunuch, as he put it, is beyond most people. But, you know, if you, if you can't do that, then, then marry. So he, he really thinks it's best not to marry at all. If you do and you're in that situation, the, 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 the commitment has to be really, really strong. But take that out of the context of his time. In an, in an age where we have contraception and, and all these kind of things, there's no reason to think that that message would still hold today but family values if you like comes in another way that he's very firm about to to follow him if you need to you need to reject your father and mother even to the point of not going to your father's funeral that day you've got to drop everything and follow him now yes let the dead bury the dead one of those phrases which again has its biblical origin is someone who who jesus wants to come and follow him and and he not even spend the time to bury his father it's not yes i mean it again this is this is very clear and i think this is very uncomfortable for modern christians particularly those who think the family life is the center of everything i mean jesus never 
never praises the family never <laughs> he he ignores his own family his 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 mother and his brothers come to see him and his followers say oh your mother your mother brothers in he goes you're my brothers now you know he's got no interest in them at all and he says to people, you know, you've got to be, you know, the, the mother's, the, the son has got to hate the father or whatever it might be. You know, he's very explicit about the division in families. So there, there's simply no place to put this family on a pedestal. Now, again, some of the Christians I spoke to wanted to tone this down a bit. And there are ways of doing it. I think they said the main message was about not idolising the family. And their view was that in current society... We've we've kind of made the family sacred in a way that we used to make God and the divine sacred, you know, and that's a kind of idolatry. And Jesus was against that. I think that's true. I think that's fair enough. But actually, I I think he went for he went further than that, and it's it's there in the text. It's very hard to argue with. In all your time thinking about this and writing about it, did you come to respect Jesus as a teacher or as a person, indeed, more or less? Well, yeah, yeah, more so. I mean, I was a bit worried when I had the idea for the project. I was a bit worried that what we would end up with would be too thin. And I don't, I don't like sort of doing this kind of debunking stuff and just saying Jesus was a useless moral teacher. But I think he was a, a rich and interesting figure. I don't think he's an attractive one, actually. Um, he's very austere. He's very stern. And... In some ways he has humility, but in other ways he really doesn't. You know, he does think that he is the centre of a cult that people should follow. And he so he doesn't and he doesn't judge people as individuals, but he certainly judges society as a class and, and people in it very, very harshly. But I think there's something important about having a figure like that in our popular imagination. I see it as a kind of a counterweight. And I think that's a really important thing. So one thing you would have to say is that do you find a complete moral philosophy in the teachings of Jesus? Now, the answer, I think, is no. But, but interestingly to me, that's also the answer given to me by most of the Christians I spoke to. Jesus takes a certain moral framework for granted, the background he comes from. What he offers are more specific challenges and, and alterations and revisions. And I think as that challenge, he's still very important because... I don't want to go as far as he goes in terms of rejecting the world and all these kind of things. But in a world in which material values have too strong a place, in which the cultivation of our own virtue is is, is not at the top of people's self-development goals, it's other things like becoming more attractive, more popular, and loving themselves more. <laughs> I think it's really useful to have that deeply challenging figure there who's really saying to us, saying to us, you know, we need to approach our lives with more moral seriousness and we need to acknowledge our failings and weaknesses much more and realise that we've got such a long way to go and we're never going to get there. Thank you so much, Julian, for a fascinating, I'll use that word again, interesting conversation. I'm Mark Mardell and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. 
the ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.